when people say they're democratizing something, <laughs> it's almost always bullshit. All right, everybody, welcome back to the weekly roundup edition of On the Margin. I'm your co-host, Mike Ippolito. I'm joined, as always, by my incorrigible co-host, Mr. Tyler Neville. Love that one. You like that? I was watching Sherlock earlier. He <laughs> got me in the British got me in the British mood. Benedict Cumberbatch? <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. This was not that Sherlock. This was the Robert Downey Jr., oh. which is more my speed. Although I did watch that Sherlock. Mm-hmm. That was good. Mm-hmm. That was solid. Yeah, he's yeah. Awesome. All right, before we actually get into stories and everything this week, I do just want to do a quick plug for this event that we're doing uh, in Bretton Woods. If that name is ringing any bells to you, that is because the original Bretton Woods conference was hosted there back in 19... 19- 44, that was when the monetary order was set out. That's where we decided on the U.S. dollar as a global reserve currency. We had the IMF. We had the World Bank come out of that. And now we are at another turning point where we are looking at the monetary system and saying this does not work. And we are hosting a conference there in August. Absolute killer lineup. I am so freaking excited for this thing. We've got Dan Tapiero. we got Grant Williams. we got Lynn Alden. we got Luke Groban. We've got a bunch of names that you have heard on this podcast before. If you're interested... Hit the site. We'll drop a link in the in the notes, and you can go sign up, meet all these people in person. Be there for the next wave. Also, there's golf. Also, there's golf. So if you like golf in New Hampshire, amazing golf, hiking. It's going to be a whole thing. Um, so emphatic. The golf is what's so, so emphatic. I know, baby. All right. Big stories of the week. We got a couple. Uh, Andreessen Horowitz is uh, shattering records, raising a $2.2 billion crypto fund. Uh, we got the NASDAQ and S&P hitting all-time highs. So we're just going to do kind of like a an outlook on markets and what's going on there. Um, oil has continued to run up, so it hit 73.17. As of today, we're recording uh, the 24th, which is the Thursday. So we're going to talk about this this run that oil is making. Uh, and then last, we're going to talk about Robinhood. They've rolled out uh, retail IPO allocations, basically allowing retail investors to buy into hot IPOs. They are, quote unquote, democratizing IPOs. So my uh, bullshit meter, that does not pass the sniffo meter in, uh, in my parlance. So... No, thank you. Um, <laughs> all right, so let's let's uh, let's let's get into the first thing here. So A16Z, which is a, a crypto fund, has announced Crypto Fund Three, um, and that's a two point two billion dollar fund, which is the largest of its kind in crypto. The fund is going to be led by Chris Dixon uh, and Katie Juan. Uh, they led uh, crypto funds one and two. Uh, in terms of mandate, the fund is pretty broad, actually. Uh, they're ranging from like DeFi to Bitcoin applications to just more general sort of Web three. Something interesting to note, uh, a couple of years ago, I believe back in 2019, they actually changed their legal status from a VC to an RIA. Reason being their uh, VCs are limited in what they can actually invest in, and that doesn't include tokens. So in a pretty baller move that they didn't get a lot of credit for at the time, they actually changed their entire legal status to become an RIA so that they could invest in tokens, which was a a very bold move uh, back then. That was not in vogue at all. So props to A16Z for doing that. Um, just to set the scene here, like this, there's a lot going on in the VC space. Uh, so this kind of comes across other high profile raises. So we just watched blockchain cap raise 300 million, uh, last month, uh, sort of a newcomer to the space, uh, framework ventures raised a hundred million dollars for a DeFi fund. Um, and privately, like you and I were talking about before this, this show, the, the AUM that some of these funds have grown. Same. Orders of magnitude, yeah. two orders of magnitude. I don't want to out anyone, but you know these went from, in some cases, eight figure sum to ten figure sum. When you think about the size of these things, it used to be in. If you think about legacy finance, if you had like a hundred million dollar hedge fund, it was like, wow, they're a hundred million dollar hedge fund. That happened like that overnight. 
in in crypto. And now they're raising billion dollar funds. Do you know how hard it is to raise a billion dollar hedge fund? Like in the public markets? And now it's happening left and right. And that should be a sign that there really is no yield in the public markets anymore. Like the high yield, mm. uh, yield to worst is under 3.9%. You can't find any returns anywhere. And after inflation, it's, it's negative. It's the same thing we've talked about. But like, this should be a sign that like, smartest investors who built the internet, Mark Andreessen and Ben Horowitz, are really putting like a lot of money behind this. If it's a zero, that's like they're wrong on technology. Who knows technology the best? So I don't know. Huge sign to me. Yeah, huge, huge sign. I mean, and amidst just what's going on in, in VC, um, some of these rounds that companies are raising are they're the, the biggest rounds that crypto's ever seen. Mm -hmm. So uh, like an example, I think Ledger actually takes the cake. Um, so there was a $380 million Series C that was led by our friend Dan Tapiero over at 10T Holdings. Um, but, you know, others are sort of in that ballpark as well. So in March, BlockFi raised uh, $350 million Series D. I believe Blockchain Cap raised $300 million. Chainalysis just raised uh, another $100 million. Uh, and in Series E round, valuing it at $4.2 I think that actually brought, like, so its valuation, I think since its last $100 million raise, which was back in February or something like that, they've doubled their valuation. So crazy stuff is happening on the, you know, as you're seeing more and more capital flow in on the fund side, no surprise, the rounds that companies are raising much, much larger than anything we have seen in the past, uh, again, by an order of magnitude. So, yeah, it's pretty cool. It's pretty interesting. Um, Very cool. I think this was like 2018, right after the, the real crypto bubble bust. Mm -hmm. And Katie Hahn went to Kyle Bass's house in San Francisco to film an interview. And I was at Real Vision at the time. And she sat there talking about the Silk Road and Ross Albrecht and how she basically helped bring it down. And then she made the move over to Andreessen as a partner there from being a U.S. attorney. And I remember sitting there thinking like, wow, that was a really strategic move to bring over this woman who brought down the Silk Road and become a partner at your VC fund. And they're just, and at that moment I was like, I should probably buy some crypto. You have the greatest macro, you know, one of their best macro investors, Kyle Bass, interviewing this woman at Andreessen. And I'm sitting there real time, like, I should, buy, I should buy some more crypto. And, like, I should just go boatload in. And I did, I did a little bit, but not enough, obviously. That's why I'm still here <laughs> and not on some beach. But, like, it was, it's when you see those little strategic moves of people moving from one part of the industry that was like regulatory to private, that's the sign that there's so much upside and incentive and that's where the next big growth leg is going to be. And that should be like on everyone's radar when they see these moves, like people from BlackRock jumping into crypto, you know, hiring COOs, CEOs from the legacy financial world. Anyway, thought that was a good incremental story for you, Mike. I thought it was great. It really contributed. I, you know what I, you know what I do think is, um, no, but you're, you're completely right. I, uh, well, I mean, one thing that people don't see from the outside, uh, and I was actually, this is a, like a total twist of, of fate or fortune or whatever. I, uh, there's a guy, Eddie Lazarin, who's a partner at A16Z, who by chance works out of the same office space in Williamsburg that we do. And I bumped into him yesterday and I always refer people back to this essay that he wrote in 2018. 
he had this very catchy title for it. He called it the crypto price innovation cycle. Uh, catchy title, what it basically means is that everything follows price or price or speculation is a mechanism that draws people into this space. And the simple observation that he's made that's obvious if you've been in this space for a long period of time is that when, when prices run up, that necessarily generates a lot of media attention. It gets people thinking, wow, there's like something to the space. It wasn't a, it wasn't a flash in the pan after mm-hmm. all. And what it does, in, it, it ushers in the next wave of uh, entrepreneurs and it ushers in the next wave of capital. So it's this very real cycle. Maybe we can link to the, the actual article in the show notes because it's argued in a much more eloquent way than what I just said. Um, and actually, if you, if you want to end on maybe some there's like a somewhat bullish, somewhat bearish uh, response here, our friends at The Block actually put together this great chart of um, VC money moving into crypto. And if you look actually in uh, 2017, even though that was the year that we all remember being like the big bubble year, VC barely budged. It was at about a billion dollars in 2018. That's when all the VC money came in. It shoots up to about 5.5 billion invested. That's like a five, five, six X increase. And if you look at 2018, 2019, it's about just under 3 billion. Then it's 3 billion. So far this year, it's like 8.8 billion dollars, mm. right? And we're only halfway through the year. So on the one hand, that's extremely bullish. All of that capital that came in in 2018 got everyone through the bear market last time. On the other hand, it's very much a lagging indicator and it does tend to mark uh, market tops because VCs chase in. So, and that's kind of what we're seeing right yeah. now. So, uh, Historically, I would, I would say that's probably accurate. And, mm-hmm. but there's no credit stress and everything unwinds when there's credit stress. And this is mm-hmm. right now we're, we're not seeing it. Maybe that changes if inflation takes off, which I watch constantly. Like I'm waiting for like credit spreads to blow out and they don't. So I don't know. It's, you got to dance while the music's playing, I guess. Yeah. Well, I mean, one thing that happened, you know, in 2017, it actually wasn't real. I mean, there's just something about gravity, right? Like if you look at the parabolic rise of like September through December of 2017, it was like, that was bound to end in tears. Mm-hmm. But the other thing that ended up happening was ICOs back then, everyone raised in ETH uh, and then their treasuries were essentially denominated in ETH. And there was like almost like a forced selling narrative, right? Because there are actual treasuries that are denominated in this asset. People have real world use cases for that. So there's just like forced selling that ended up triggering everything down. Uh, you know, this also kind of plays into this Suzu super cycle narrative. Um, my personal thought for the market that we're looking at right now is that I think these four-year super predictable bull bear cycles are over. Uh, I think this is. I think he's actually right. I think this is the last one. So I actually think we are living through the super cycle right now. It's just not the super cycle that everyone imagined, which was up only straight to the moon. Yeah. You know, hundred percent. I think. I think what Suzu is talking about when he's talking about the super cycle is that look, either at a certain point an asset makes it or it doesn't, and it, once it makes it, it's not going to conform to these ultra predictable you know, extreme bull bear cycles. Yeah. And I think what we're looking at right now is we're looking at a break because it doesn't make sense. We're, we, it, in a sense, we're clearly in a bear market. Like if you look at charts, it looks brutal. Crypto's never survived more than a 50% pullback during a bull market. It's always marked a bear market. On the other hand, there's so much going from a fundamental standpoint, and this would be like the smallest bull market that crypto's ever had. So it just doesn't fit the narrative. And I think the most likely explanation is that we're departing from the four years. Yeah. Basically, that's fascinating. And if you look at 
the market cap, as soon as it crossed like a trillion in Bitcoin, I think that got on the radar of like China because, and that's the impetus. You're now at the point where, okay, you're growing fast enough and your market cap's big enough. It's pretty destabilizing. Like the technology has proven itself if El Salvador and, you know, you can transfer money around the world for little fees and, and instantaneously, right? So that that in itself proves the technology works. But once you cross that threshold, you're right. Like it's not just a, a asset that's tiny anymore. Like China literally banned Bitcoin mining and took it out of the entire country. Like, and it only fell to 30K. Yeah. To me, I'm like, that's that's pretty bullish. Yeah. I, I'm I'm with you. I, I agree. I Maybe there was something magical about the $1 trillion number. And I actually can remember in 2017, um, when the market cap hit like 400 billion or something like that, I was just blown away. I was like, that, I mean, that's like 10 times as high as it felt like it should have been <laughs> at that time. And I remember, I remember thinking this is impossible. Like this, this can't yeah. be. Um, and now I actually was, I mean, this is going to sound insane, but my personal, uh, like speed bump or like, uh, uh <laughs> speed limit, Jesus words today, uh, speed limit for crypto was like, I, I was going to say when it hits 20 trillion as an asset class, that's when I think it will overload because as high as you think it will get, I mean, it's, it will, it will continue to be higher. And I also kind of think about the, the ratio of gold to Bitcoin or the market caps mm -hmm. there, so to speak. And to me, Bitcoin is clearly a better version of gold. So it feels obvious that Bitcoin should have a higher market cap than, than gold. And then when you kind of back into what the rest of the crypto would have to be for that to be the case, it'd be like around 20 trillion. But obviously I was an order of magnitude yeah. off. So and the adoption curve of it is still kind of going up, just like the internet. It, it mimics the internet, the number of users. And, you know, if, if you're just going purely off like that VC thing where, hey, Facebook users are, are going up, the internet users are going up, and then you can monetize later, like we're, we're watching that in real time. So in, until that rolls over, I think you got to stay a little bit bullish. Yeah, I um, <laughs> I've actually heard this in a couple places now. I really like this um, this framework for thinking about it. It's like the least scientific thing ever, but basically the market is going to do what frustrates the greatest number of people. Mm -hmm. Um, so basically, right now I listen to Jim Bianco do this interview on Bankless, and his basic thing was like, what would be the most frustrating thing for Bitcoin to do over the course of the next nine months? It would be to do nothing <laughs> at all because. You know, because the people who want it to go up are going to be frustrated. Why isn't it going up? The people that are like, it's a bubble and they want it to go down. It's not going to go down mm -hmm. either. Honestly, it would be the most frustrating thing for it to just trade sideways for like nine more months. And that's what <laughs> I actually think that yeah. that's until um, until so. that VC money gets in there to bring a full loop. And like they start really creating the future, you know, the building the infrastructure better where I think that's probably the next big, big, big up leg. Agreed. Yeah, I'd agree. Um, and obviously there are no rules and history, you know, it, it rhymes, but it doesn't repeat. And I think those who are looking back at the last couple cycles and saying, hey, and including myself, uh, and I was using this as more of a roadmap than I even consciously admitted to myself. I was kind of looking back at previous cycles and saying, hey, it's very likely that it's going to look something like this. And clearly that's not the case. So mm -hmm. 
That's why investing is hard. I guess. <laughs> that's why we're um, in media. <laughs> Just kidding. That's why we're in media, baby. That's why we're in now. Um, all right, let's talk about uh, shift gears here and move out, zoom out a little bit and look at the macro. So, I mean, the title here of this next story is just the NASDAQ and S&P are hitting all-time highs again. But really what I'd love to do, Tyler, is just like pick your brain a little bit on kind of what happened in terms of the mar- like uh, broader markets this week. So we had the FOMC overview last week. That was kind of billed as a, as a hawkish surprise. But honestly, there wasn't that much unexpected there. I know we saw some, uh, you know, two of the... Uh, on the Fed board, we're talking about hiking rates in 2023, but it sounds like it's a lot of waffling and, and the market didn't really believe them, it looked like. Um, uh, but this week, basically, it looks like everything's kind of treading water. So you have the S&P, they are reaching all-time highs, respectively. Of, um, But, you know, it's, it's not they're not massive new highs, right? Uh, the dollar has uh, slid a little bit since it strengthened last week. Uh, yield slid a little bit and gold is basically doing nothing and like slightly down. It feels like a whole lot of nothing. I'm curious, like, what's your overall take on what's going on? Yeah, th- this week we just had this is just consolidation. There, it's we're getting into the summer doldrums. I think people, the trading volumes are very low. You saw Nasdaq kind of make new highs on very, very low trading volume. If it was a real, real, real bull market, like you'd probably see higher volumes on the breakout, and that didn't happen, which is kind of funny. Um, so, but you also saw after the FOMC, the long duration yields fell, and that kind of gave the allocators more uh, faith in the tech, the tech narrative. So that's kind of playing out temporarily. I know I've said in my my newsletters what I think is really going to happen is the dollar is going to roll over again here. Uh, we're going to get that next up leg in the inflation narrative because everyone now thinks it's transitory inflation. Uh, and I think the dollar's gonna roll over. The Euro seems poised to rally, which leads to other dollar weakness. And the Chinese Yuan, which no one really looks at, fascinated by, uh, that seems to strengthen. When the Chinese Yuan strengthens again, that leads to dollar weakness too, because these are all the biggest trading partners, right? If you look up the setups, if you have the dollar rally further from here, yes, Treasury yields will go lower. You'll get the transitory inflation narrative. But it doesn't look that way when you plug all the pieces together to me. Um, it looks more just like this was just a short, oversold rally in the dollar. And people were very short rising yields. Now they're forced to cover. The bond vigilantes were forced to cover. Uh, and everyone th- gets back into tech thinking, oh, everything, the, so- the same narrative is playing out. But like... Tesla's off its highs, ARC's off its highs. Underneath the hood of the tech market, there was a lot of pain. So I think this is just a consolidation underneath. Yeah. I have a question just about the bond market in general for you. Like one thing, uh, you know, our, our friends uh, Grant William uh, and Bill Fleck, uh, Bill Fleckenstein like to say is like the, the bond market will eventually take away the keys to the printing press from the Federal Reserve. Yeah, they've um, been saying that for 10 years. And we, we, <laughs> <laughs> it's, yeah, they've been saying it for a little while. Yeah. Um, but I'm curious, do you agree with it? Because we haven't really seen bond vigilantes in like the true sense of the bond vigilante, the George Soros era, uh, kind of that that sense of the word for a long period of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but on the other hand, it's the largest, you know, most important market in the world. Uh, so I'm just curious, like, do you agree with that sentiment? Do you disagree? I think the piece that everyone's missing in that is the one that Russell Clark figured out, which is 
you don't get rising yields until wage inflation hits. And right. the wage inflation, I think, is the real driver of everything. And that is behind the scenes. Those wheels are turning now. Because if you, you take the past 40 years, this is what Russell says. He's, and I said it in my newsletter tonight, which is the minimum wage has only gone up 2x in the past 40 years. Previously, before that, from like 1930 to 1980, it went up like 13x, meaning like labor was getting paid. And that's why you had inflation through the 1970s that because wages were rising, everything was about making your neighbor and growing the middle, making your neighbor richer, growing the middle class. That's more buyers of commodities, right? In the past 30 years or was it almost four, four years, everything, wages haven't really gone up for the labor party. So like, or, or the average right. American worker. So there, there hasn't been inflation. So like the bond market is basically saying to you that like, the only thing we really care about is when a large pool of people start buying lots of commoditized shit. Like that's when, that's when yields really rise. But that, and that's a political decision. That's what I think Grant and Bill Fleckenstein are missing in this is like the bond market just doesn't run away. The bond market runs away when like lots of people have lots of money and they're buying lots of commoditized stuff. And so that's what I'm watching in oil seems to be kind of saying there's something to that. Like oil did not drop as yields dropped. It's moving higher and higher. And that's fascinating. And maybe that's telling us the average American worker has more earnings somehow. What do you think is going to drive that wage um, inflation, though? Because we, I mean, really, when you think about yields, yeah, yeah, I guess it has to be. Yeah, because when, when you really think about yields, what are yields? Yields is just the expectation of further future growth. That's what drives yields, right? It's the idea that, okay, there's going to be growth in the future. So I'm okay with borrowing for a certain percentage now because it obviously doesn't exactly work like this, right? But if there's growth in the future, you can model out a cost of capital for today because you're like, okay, well, I'm going to be X in the future so I can pay Y today to borrow that money. Uh, that's So if, if you don't think that there's going to be growth in the future, there's no reason for there to be yields or the cost of capital you know, shrinks. And that's kind of what's what's actually happening. So I guess is you just think it's politics and, and they're actually going to be able to like rein labor in uh, without creating growth or do we actually need to create like real productive growth? Um, I think you're going to see, yeah, you're going to see like the drum beats. Inequality is clearly like a big thing, right? And fiscal is going to target way more uh, labor than it is capital. They just did another, you know, 1 trillion in, in infrastructure plan. That's, going to target like a way different population than when you, the Fed buys bonds and, you know, you can issue debt at advantageous rates and then lever your company up. So that, that's the big political decision. And not only that, I think, you know, the giant organizations are now after years and years and years of ignoring the average American worker and financial inflation so high, they're they're going to have to pay the price. Like they're going to have to raise prices. The labor gap between, I said this last week, but like the jolts, the the job openings are high, 
and people don't want to take them. Quit. People are quitting because the labor, the the the, the jobs don't pay enough. So they're they're usually they're probably moving to another part of the country to have a lower cost of, of living. So corporations are going to have to pay up for the labor eventually. And, and that's the rising wages and the rising bond yields. Yeah, that's crazy. That's actually a hallmark of inflation, right? Like if it is crazy because there are labor shortages and at the same time, people aren't, they don't want to bring workers back. So one of the hallmarks of inflation is actually supply shortages or shortages of yeah. goods. And you're, I know this is anecdotal and there is, you know, there's a COVID element to this, but you know, if you go and try to buy, like my parents are moving right now to Montana and they got to like buy like a dishwasher and stuff like that. Um, and they're like, all right, great. Yeah, no, this is the model you want. Okay, cool. We'll have that to you in four months. It's like, no, I need the dishwasher yeah. To yeah. now, you know? Um, and part of that is real logistical uh, concerns. It's like hard to get the materials and they're real just backlogs essentially. But a lot of it too is just, we don't want to pay for, for what the labor market is saying we need to pay. Yeah. Around. So transitory inflation, but like you can't get people to do this stuff. It's, that's yeah. the fascinating thing. It's like you, David Rosenberg's talking all about these things, you know, supplies, houses going up and all these deflationary things. And he puts on the deflationary gla glasses all the time. And it's it's worked. But like this time, I think it's different. I think it's different. <laughs> Famously good words to say in the world. Of <laughs> Shit. <laughs> <laughs> A little racist, but I'm wrong. <laughs> Uh, no, um, it's uh, for posterity's sake here. I don't know, man. It's 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 really hard. I actually think that you know the one conclusion you can take from the inflation versus deflation debate um, is that nobody really knows. Actually, I listened to Stephanie Kelton talk about this, the MMT, you know, one of those leading MMT scholars, yeah. and her her explanation of what causes inflation is the one that has sat the best with me, which is that nobody really knows. <laughs> nobody really knows what causes it. Um, and uh, it sounds like the best way. There's, yeah, you know, I mean, there's like the Phillips honest. curve, yada yada. <laughs> I do. At least she's honest. You know, at, like we've kind of joked about this off off air, but you know, if you've been calling for inflation for 20 years and then it eventually happens, do you get to say you were right? I don't think you so. were right. You clearly, if, if you called it inflation in financial assets. Man, you've been killing it, right? Like you've been crushing it. But that's what people are all these it, things in financial world and housing. Yeah. I guess the corollary of that saying is like, I'm right if you extend the timeline out long enough, mm -hmm. right? Like eventually, yeah, inflation is going to happen. <laughs> yeah, the world's going to end. Everything's going to happen. Yeah. You know, if you believe in the multiverse, every possible combination of things has already yeah. happened. So, yeah. All right, we're getting derailed here a little bit. Let's, let's move on to our next. Uh, we start talking about the multiverse. We got to move to the next mm -hmm. topic. Um, all right, let's talk about oil. So um, basically, oil has been consolidating for the last uh, week or so, but it's still... You know, it didn't pull back. Uh, as, as we're talking right now, it's uh, WTI is at uh, $73, right around there. Um, and uh, yeah, it's trading. If you almost look at a chart, actually pre-COVID, uh, there was that big dip, right, where it kind of bottomed out to actually negative prices in April of 2020. But then it's kind of rebounded. It's right back in that range uh, where it was at before. And if you look literally kind of 2014 on, it's in this 50 to $75 uh, range. Um, and it's kind of at the high side of that right now. Um, so there's a bunch of different uh, kind of supply constraints uh, coming up, both in terms of inventory. There's, we're kind of waiting on news from OPEC. I don't really want to get into that, but I think one of the most interesting dynamics right now that's actually going on uh, comes from the world of ESG. Uh, so basically, the, the bosses of some of the world's biggest oil companies um, are coming out and saying that they expect to see 
uh, crude prices rise uh, because of a lack of investment, uh, and that's going to curtail future supply. So you have the chief executive officers of Royal Dutch Shell and Total Energies. Uh, they joined major commodity traders and banks in predicting that oil could go as high as $100 a barrel, um, although they said that volatile markets could drive prices back down. Um, so this is a quote from the CEO of ExxonMobil, Darren Woods. Uh, Low investment is going to, quote, exacerbate supply and demand tightness as the economies pick back up. And then in time, we'll see uh, supply pick up and rebalance. Uh, so basically, even though it's looking like the world is shifting towards greener sources of energy, more sustainable sources of energy, we still need oil. Uh, and we're doing chronic, essentially, underinvestment in it. Do you agree with this thesis? Do you see $100 uh, oil in our future? Yes. I think I do. <laughs> I do. And not that I'm like an oil expert. I think just the stuff we talked about with Exxon and the board basically a couple of weeks ago with engine number one replacing, you know, the board members, that can happen at every big oil company now because, you know, Vanguard and BlackRock have to abide by ESG. So we could see this go on forever. And not only that, but the high yield market is not funding these like shale oil drillers like it was back in the the cycle in 2014 to 2016. They used, there was no yield and and they got money to basically drill drill down. Oil comes spewing up for the first year in the second year of shale oil, shale oil drilling, it just depletes. It's like nowhere to be found. So like that money is no longer funding the high yield money is not funding the energy projects as much as it used to in that cycle. And I think that's kind of a very interesting thing because that helped a lot of the oversupply. We were doing like, I think it was like 11 million barrels a day in the U.S. So uh, it, that should probably drop, I'm guessing. And it should drop even further with the ESG mandates. So, and, and I don't think, you know, India's got to come back online from COVID. You know, China's still still chugging along. There's lots of, Lots of bullish stuff for for real things to happen, and a hundred dollar oil is, isn't that crazy. And the other thing, the other interesting thing is the transitory inflation narrative. If that was true, why wouldn't oil just dip a little bit? Like OPEC's going to release supply, etc. We didn't see one sniff of a sell off in oil, which usually is very bullish. Yeah, um, there's a there's a graphic that's going around, which is basically. Um, U.S. fracking crews uh, that's needed to maintain uh, current output of oil in the U.S. And basically, there's been a big um, resurgence, essentially, of crews that are going out and, and fracking again. But basically, we're just at the level right now where it's continuing the, the current level of um, production. Uh, so, yeah, I think it's I think it's a big question mark. And, you know, we've talked about, you know, the, the importance of input as a or the as oil as an input cost into the economy. Allison uh, Reichel. Um, you know, our, our economic strategist, she, she wrote about the importance of oil and some of the impacts that that has on the economy. So, yeah, overall, I think it's just something to continue to watch. Um, I, I guess my question to you is, if we did see um, oil go to $100 a barrel, do you think you would see governments start reacting? Right? I, I feel like people would start to get concerned if those prices got crossed. Yeah, we're going to have to really see the earnings calls because they've talked about inflation, but they haven't specifically talked about oil prices impacting everything. And that will be a really fascinating thing. If next quarter you get CEOs saying, hey, oil, this $100 
barrel oil is really like impacting our bottom line, you're going to see a, a valuation check across the board in anything that's like super high growth name, in my opinion. So that's the number one input from 75 to 100 bucks. That's really going to be uh, a key a key point. Yeah, I agree. Um, all right, let's move on to our next story, which is uh, Robin Hood um, rolling out <laughs> IPO allocations basically to retail investors, or as Robin Hood bills it, um, where they're democratizing IPOs. So I, I, I don't know. This is just something I've started to pick. When, when people say they're democratizing something, <laughs> it's almost always bullshit. It's almost always bullshit. Um, so... Let's just like talk a little bit about exactly what it is. There's kind of a cool historical reference actually to something Fidelity did back in 1999. But basically what they're doing is, I mean, can you actually, I mean, you worked at uh, Franklin Templeton. Can you actually give us like an, an insider's view on what the IPO process kind of looks like from the investment banks kind of, you know, doling out shares to mutual funds? Like how does that all work kind of from the inside? Yeah. So if you are a large, large commission payer on the street and say Goldman's running a, an IPO and they they call you up and they say, hey, uh, this I don't know this new cool company is coming to market. How much of the the IPO do you want? And if you're at Fidelity or Franklin Templeton or Wellington and you pay a lot of commissions, you can be like, oh, I want ten percent of the deal. So you take you know ten percent of the allocation available to the IPO investors, and that that's sort of what you go. You get cut down depending on the demand of it, but they get first shot because number one, they're long-term shareholders. They're usually not flipping the stock right on the IPO. Um, and, and those guys are going to put it in their book and it's going to sit there for 20 years and that's fine. But this is where it's, it's fascinating is companies don't want like Robin hood to get an allocation because they're like, these people are going to flip it immediately for a quick profit, which just keeps the supply down. And, but it's also the real retail investors. So like you have on one side, you have like the retirement people, like the Fidelity, the Franklins, the Wellingtons, and then the Robin Hood should get some, I guess, if they have a lot of people, but you know, it's probably going to be like trimmed down because they're going to flip it. Everyone knows they're going to flip it and it's just the, it won't have that much of an impact on, on supply. I don't think. Yeah. I think, um, I mean, basically, I guess the way to understand what's going on here is that there are lots of different companies out there who want to make, uh, investing easier for retail investors, like retail investors for the first time in a long time actually drove, um, the market, uh, last year. Kind of, right? Obviously, like big trend following, like hedge funds kind of piled on and they realized what was going on and took advantage of the situation. But there was some truth to that narrative, which was when those stimulus checks got sent out, a lot of them did actually end up in brokerage accounts, Robinhood kind of being the poster child for that. And for the first time in a while, uh, retail was actually moving the market in a pretty significant way. And, you know, Malavine has this great analogy of uh, brokerages being investment stores. And you don't necessarily think about uh, brokerages as investment stories. You just say, "Hey, I'm going to come to this thing and make an investment." But what the menu, but brokerages think about them as products, right? Mm -hmm. They're like, "I got to find a way to package up and productize this thing so I can sell it uh, to as many people as possible," and that's how they get 
paid, basically. Uh, so it's just kind of a different lens at, at, at which, the way that you look at the world. Uh, and if you look at everything from like stock splits, right? So like Tesla stock splits um, to, you know, Apple's done it a bunch of times. Uh, if you look at what uh, Robinhood is doing right now by allowing retail investors to get in on IPO sooner, everyone's just trying to lower the barrier to entry because they know that there's a, a colossal amount of demand for retails to retail investors to access the stock market. Uh, and actually, if you go back to 1999, which was obviously in the peak of the dot-com bubble, uh, Fidelity did the same thing mm. to pretty disastrous results. So Yeah. Well, retail retail is always held in the bag. That's always the contra indicator, right? But it, it was 1999. <laughs> you still had another year of it. Yeah. Actually, I guess that is one thing that's kind of interesting about crypto. I mean, it does get talked about a lot, but this has kind of been the one asset class so far where retail actually kind of front-ran the institutions to like to somewhat uh, success. Yeah, um, and I think that's still kind of there. The the linchpin again, wages and rising yields. So as long as that's there, you know, maybe retail. This is what's crazy about this market is enough fiat gets printed. We could just constantly be in this like Weimar Republic type, you know things just go up and you just have to keep it ahead of the inflation at this point in central banking. Um, so, so that's what I mean. <laughs> this time's different. Maybe, maybe it is, you know, and maybe it's not actually different and maybe we are just repeating history at an earlier point in time. That's before our memory. You know, there's this great book. It's called, um, the bankers who broke the world by Liakata Ahmed. And it goes through the entire history of this stuff of, of just constant money printing and wheelbarrow barrows of cash and, you know, the stock market never making a, a, a low, always making a new high. It, it actually legally had to trade higher every single day. You couldn't print anything at a lower price. So we're, maybe we're at that point. I don't know. Who knows? Yeah, I have no idea. I um. I mean, it's certainly a weird, it feels like a really weird period uh, in time to be living through. So, uh, like we're talking about, there's something almost in the air, right? <laughs> I don't know. It just feels like, yeah. uh, it feels a little bit odd, I think. Generational shift, man. You could call it a generational arbitrage. You could. Fascinating. Speaking of which, my new that. podcast Someone episode is coming out tomorrow <laughs> with Nick Hilaris. <laughs> Great plug. Um I, I actually am curious to get your opinion because you, your interview last week was great um, with Brian Reynolds um, and he actually, you know, two very contrasting narratives. Maybe we could just close this out on your thoughts on whether or not um, maybe outside of crypto we're entering a bull or a bear market because the case for the bear market is just, look, we're clearly trading. If we are trading on fundamentals, then this is one of the richly, most richly priced markets in, in history, right? If you look at something like price to earnings or the Cape ratio in the stock market, just, I mean, look at the growth of, of kind of real estate and bonds and all that kind of stuff. Everything just looks really expensive. Historically, there's mean reversion there and things tend to turn around. Brian had kind of a different take on that, actually. So I wonder if you could even just like talk a little bit about what he brought up in that episode, maybe make the case that we might be entering a large bull market, actually. Yeah, so his his basic thesis is these unfunded pensions are driving the majority of investment. And it's a daisy chain of financial engineering where uh, the pensions get more tax dollars allocated 
from their state. So like say California has an unfunded pension that's only 70% funded. They take a portion of their tax dollars. They allocate that more, more towards investment. That, that money goes to fixed income, a large portion of it. Um, and he has this chart that goes up and to the right of credit allocation going to fixed income. They buy debt of public companies and they keep buying debt of public companies because they need to make up this gap of funding. And so that drives essentially the, the corporations are incentivized to issue debt and then buy back their own stock. They shrink their shares. The market goes up because earnings rise, but like revenue doesn't go up. The earnings, the earnings rise because the shares shrink. So it's just this financial engineering type thing driven by essentially this unfunded pension, um, this politics thing. So uh, he just thinks we started a new cycle of this all. Like during the pandemic, they were gonna have a credit cycle. You actually bailed out all the creditors with all the money printing. And he thinks you can, all the cash that's in the system now is now sitting there getting no yield and it's gonna be have to be invested. And so his whole thesis is, we're just seeing the beginnings of this cycle happen again. Um, which is the most logical bull argument I've heard. And very, it, it takes into account like there's, what was it? 800 billion sitting in like treasury or, or at the park at the Fed, just losing money in real terms. And that makes a lot of sense to me. If there's that much money sitting there, that'll probably seep its way into to markets at some point. Um, so the cycle's kind of kicking off again. At the end of the day, this is where I think it's really important to watch politics because if you get a political decision, it can put a kink in all of this stuff. Like if you say that, um, you know, you can't no you can no longer, you know, do share buybacks or, there, there's weird political things at this point in the cycle because the, the gap between rich and poor is so wide. And no one, no financial analyst is paying attention to political stuff because like you can't do data-backed analysis, but like at generational turning points, those, those decisions make capital markets. And like back in the Weimar Republic, they just chose to print over it, right? And here, I think if you get like targeted pockets of, of labor that get like wage increases, that could break the debt bubble. And then the Brian Reynolds thesis unwinds. So those are the things that I'm really watching closely, but I think that's the engine. Reynolds got the engine right better than anybody I know. Like all the, the people, the big bulge brackets, no one's put that whole thesis together. Um, and then on the contrary, like Russell Clark has figured out that like the, the, the real input on bond yields is actually wages. And that's a political decision is wages. Minimum wage, if that keeps going up, those things are political decisions and they're not flexible. You can't, once you raise the minimum wage, you can't really lower it. And people, once you take things away from people, they hate it. So those are the, the decisions that are going to be made in the next like, couple of years. We, we should all be paying attention to. Was that a lot? It's impossible to take anything away. <laughs> no, 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 that's yeah. great. There is, I had, there's a guy, Scott Galloway, he's 
pivot. Yeah, um, yeah. But he, he said this thing that resonated with me is like, yeah, you know, if you if you're if you have to choose between uh, reducing someone's pay or firing them, you should just fire them. <laughs> like that sounds really cold blooded, but it's just tough, man. People don't like doing the same work for less pay, and you're going to be dealing with someone who's ornery. And I just remembered him saying that. I was like, wow, that's a bold thing to say on a podcast. You still employ a lot of people, well, but inside uh, baseball yeah, on yeah. that one at Franklin—not <laughs> at Franklin Templeton—but like they would just slowly pay people lower and lower, and get them to quit <laughs> themselves, and those people would be the saltiest people on the planet because they get paid down every year, and they were just like, I and they just ruin the culture. Because instead of firing them, they just like kind of like put them on an island, and I'm like, that's how you get people to like bring in an AK-47 and like mow people down. <laughs> Sorry, that's a little bit much, but like you get. Sorry about being yeah, like penny wise and pound foolish. That is such a horrendous trade off. I don't know who's making that. Not to Franklin Templeton, yeah, whatever, yeah. but like, what are you doing with that decision? Because. If you have an employee who's unhappy, even for two months, it's like a virus, man. It infects everyone and everyone feels it. And you're like, ah, man, and you start to feel grumpier. It's like, you gotta get them out, man. Otherwise you're going to ruin the culture. Yeah. Like, that's man. I hope, I hope the savings were sizable, but yeah, well, I mean, like it's, it's all cycles. I shouldn't say that was just a couple of years, but passive has been eating active management mutual funds for years and years and years. So it's like this. Yeah, I think that's probably if you look at any mutual fund, that's probably happening in any, any industry, really, that's in kind of a secular decline. Yeah. So, Mike, so. that's, you know, remember, <laughs> to just fire people. <laughs> Christ, no, no, us never. But I, yeah, I mean, I do remember listening to this guy say that and being and thinking like, dude, you are the CEO of a company that employs many people. So that's a bold, bold thing to say online. Yeah. Um, but props to him, I guess. Uh, all right. Let's wrap it up. What are you up to this weekend? Go. So my father-in-law's in town. He's like a hurricane. Uh, he's sitting outside the door right now, ready to party already. I'm like, ready to like, party. Dude, it's yeah. Thursday, dude. It's not even yet. bombs. Jager bombs. He's like, come on, tequila, let's go. <laughs> I mean, you got to do tequila shots with the father-in-law. I think that's that's just in the rules right there. Yeah. yeah. So that's my uh, that's my weekend. Nice. Should be fun. Yeah. Well, I got a buddy who's got a uh, – he's an employee at Blockworks, but he's uh, now just a friend. I'm going down to D.C. It's his birthday. Uh, he actually runs a very successful biscotti business, Bucks County Biscotti. Shout out mm -hmm. Riley. Uh, at buckscountybiscotti.com. Head over there, get yourself some delicious biscotti. <laughs> Riley, I charge a very high CPM for a podcast ad, so I'm going to send you an invoice uh, for this little impromptu shout out. I've heard um, a lot about this guy. He also, must have been a legend. Oh, yeah. legend. Great guy. Yeah, great dude. Um, yeah. Um, you got to ask Julie about him. Julie's got, Julie's got some stories nice. for sure. Um, all right, let's wrap it there, buddy. Good, uh, good work. I'll see you same time next week. Take care.